0: Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Episode 133. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, usual housekeeping material. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and of course you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, you can go to my webpage brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you will find all of my social media buttons. Just click on those, take you right to my social media accounts. And while you're there, you can give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. While you're also at BrianMcClanahan.com, stop over to BrianMcClanahan.com forward slash support. You can donate to the Brian McClanahan Show, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. And please remember that I do have a new McClanahan Academy. If you go to McClanahanAcademy.com, you'll find all the material about it there. You can join for free and you can get updates on new courses or course offerings or deals that I might have. So uh, go to mclanahanacademy.com. I have two classes right now, one on secession and one on my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Both have good discounts at this point. Until the end of December, you can get the secession course for 5 bucks off using the coupon code 15SECESSION, or you can get the Hamilton course for half off using the coupon code HALFHAMILTON. So head on over to mclanahanacademy.com and check out what I've got to offer there. Okay, uh, let me talk about something today that actually the the drive for doing this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show came from the Contra Krugman podcast. Uh, so I I haven't I don't do this a lot where I build a a podcast episode off of a previous podcast episode from another podcast, but I think that this one uh, was very interesting. And if you don't if you don't listen to the Contra Krugman podcast, if you've never heard of it. Uh, go on out there and look for that Contra Krugman. Uh, I think it's uh, their webpage. Let me let me look here for a second. Um, their webpage is, I believe it's ContraKrugman.com. Yeah, it's ContraKrugman.com. C-O-N-T-R-A. ContraKrugman.com. And it's a podcast hosted by uh, Tom Woods and Bob Murphy. And what they do is they take apart one of Paul Krugman's columns uh, every week. And so... Uh, this particular episode uh, aired on December second, so just uh, just a few days ago, um, but it's episode 115 of Contra Krugman, and I wanted to focus on this because of the of the uh, piece that they that they talked about. And I'm not I'm not someone who usually focuses on Paul Krugman or even cares about Paul Krugman. In fact, uh, I could go my whole life and not worry about Paul Krugman. But I know for those who are economists, particularly. Uh, you know, in the, in the libertarian side, Paul Krugman is a, a thorn in their side uh, because he is so popular. But Paul Krugman is just an, an idiot. And I, I think that um, anyways, I'll just say that about Paul Krugman. I, I love the fact that, that Bob Murphy and Tom Woods take him apart all the time and uh, really give it back to him because Paul Krugman doesn't doesn't ever look at the opposition. He won't debate anybody. Uh, so having another voice against Paul Krugman is just fantastic. But uh, this particular piece on feeling thankful but fearful, uh, and so Tom and and, and Bob actually did a very good job uh, going after some of the things that uh, some of the PC things that uh, Paul Krugman got into in this piece. And so I'm not going to focus on those. I'm going to focus on the general idea of the of the piece, and I'm going to talk about the theme of industrialization. And I'm going to talk about this idea of being fearful in a modern society. So when you look at, and I, and I tweeted this out after I listened to the podcast, because it's the episode, because I, I thought that one thing needed to be said about this. When you look at Paul Krugman's fearful list, what is he fearful for? So he said he was fearful for all kinds of of things that are in so many ways... If you look at the history of man, trivial. Really, they're trivial. Uh, We live in such a prosperous and decadent society that someone can write a column in the New York Times, perhaps the largest newspaper in the country, that still has a tremendous reach when it comes to people picking up a newspaper or going to a news site. That he can write a column like this, and it will be published, and it's just a bunch of gobbledygook garbage when you look at, again, comparing what he's fearful for when you look at history in the long durée. So, he's fearful that we have a quote-unquote sexual predator in the White House. He's fearful that there's going to be an income gap, that the plutocrats are going to make it harder for people to have upward mobility. Not that that's actually happening, but he's fearful. He's fearful that environmental policy is going to be rolled back. He's fearful that racism is making a comeback. He's fearful of anti-intellectualism. He's fearful of tax reform. (laughs) So, now, again, I think Paul and, and, I'm sorry, uh, Bob and Tom did a nice job going through some of these things and making fun of what Paul Krugman said. But when you look at those, that list, first of all, one thing you can say about that is this is generally hysteria. It's hysteria. In that, I have not seen any particular policy, uh, any particular outward expression from the administration, from the Trump administration, or those in established positions that would advocate a policy that would roll back, at least substantially roll back. Anything that has been established ever since in, in, in the last hundred years, in the expansion of the warfare state. Even when it comes to social policy. Nobody's talking now, of course, he's saying that all these things are going on behind the scenes. You've got all these you know, sexual harassment issues. And yeah, those are those most of those issues are coming from people on the left. His people. Right? The people that are very hypocritical about being warriors for women's rights. And as we've as I've talked about in this podcast, you know, part of the part of the problem is that we don't have gentlemen and ladies anymore. So, yeah, this is a real issue, certainly. On the last podcast, I talked about that with the Longmire, uh, Longmire Show in the Virginian and how, you know, men are different. This is a problem, but it's a problem because of the policies that have been implemented over the last uh, 50 years in particular that have made these things much more prevalent in society. But... Okay, that said, I want to talk about how this is problematic in looking at history in the long view. So he does say at the beginning of the piece that he's thankful for growing up in a wealthy country, a wealthy nation, where the middle class could share in the nation's wealth. Okay, think about this and think about what he's saying and how ahistorical that actually is in this particular way. He's saying, essentially, that the United States, that, that um, we are going into a phase where people in the United States are not wealthy. The fact is that Americans... And I know we can, we can pull out you know, data from other countries and we can say, well, this country has better, has better upper mobility or better economic freedom or better you know, intellectual freedom, whatever it is. We, you have these lists that are out there, lower taxes, and certainly all these things are true. You know, the United States is becoming, a, is, is already, I would say, a socialist, unitary state. And that's problematic. Too many regulations, too much centralization. All of that is a product of people like Paul Krugman, which creates the environment that he doesn't like. But anyways, so you have that. okay? But the fact is, poor people in the United States are wealthier than most people around the world. Uh, and I think uh, Tom Woods actually pointed this out in a tweet when he said, "You know, someone make when you complain about someone making a hundred thousand dollars a year, you think about what that means to the rest of the world. You are in the top one percent of the world if you make that kind of money, and the United States is a place where that can happen for anybody. For anybody, there still is tremendous upward mobility in the United States." It's there for people that want to get it. Now, we can complain if you make $100,000 a year and how much you have to pay in taxes, how many regulations you have, and you can't make more. That's really what's happening. The, The middle class, as William Graham Sumner pointed out, is the forgotten man. It's being squeezed on both ends. The rich do benefit from the government, and so do the lowest classes. They benefit, and the people that don't are the people in the middle that get squeezed because they don't make enough to really benefit from the loopholes that the government offers, and they're not poor enough to get the benefits that are doled out to the poorest, so they just end up paying a lot of taxes and get very little in services out of it. This is where the middle class gets squeezed by both ends. You could say, well, yeah, but they get roads to drive on and they get schools and... Uh, Well, uh, we can talk about what those roads are and, of course, the schools and how those roads are very expensive and ultimately wasteful and other things that are done with that. We could get into all those things. But Krugman is looking at history in a very strange way. As I said in the tweet... The things that he is fearful for would be a good day, as I said in my tweet where I talked about this, would be a good day for virtually any civilization in the history of man. I'm sure that Paul Krugman would love to go back to the 14th century when people were worried about the Black Death on a daily basis, when a huge percentage of the European population was wiped out by a plague now certainly we still have diseases today we still have horrible infectious diseases but these things essentially ravage non industrialized non-western countries the United States has a flu outbreak where it will, it will kill people and that's horrible we have infectious disease outbreaks at times that are going to uh, kill po- part of the population that's horrible but we don't face the plague uh, even when we had horrible things like Ebola and, uh, you know, you, you look at some of the other nasty viruses that can come here. Uh, we've contained these things. We have vaccinations. We have antibiotics. We have all of these things. Now, of course, we can talk about the overuse of antibiotics and all that. But right now, as, as, uh, my, as, as Kevin Goodsman has said, when people ask him, what age would you like to live in? This one. When it comes to medical technology, I'm not worried about getting a cut and dying of an infection. And we still are making medical advancements all the time in the United States. Of course, we could make this place a much more socialized medicine environment, and then those advancements may not be as rapid. Um, But as the profit motive is there, companies will do things to make advancements uh even in terms of antibiotics and other things. There's there's still people talking about you know new antibiotics and new treatments for bacterial infections and other things. So all that is there. It's it's almost like he doesn't get it. He doesn't get that. Uh, we don't have to worry about the Vikings invading and plundering our town uh as we wake up today. That that's not happening. Uh, there's, there's no marauding group moving in and taking over. And even in the United States, you say, well, that was in the 11th century. That was in the 10th century. Okay, I understand. Or that was in the, you know, I'm sorry, the, the ninth or 8th century. You could even go back there. Yeah, okay, certainly. Um, we could say that that was, you know, a thousand years ago. And so, uh, you know, but there are still parts of the world. I guess he's he's not thankful for the fact that we don't have to worry about pirates off our coast all the time stealing our stuff. We can go take a pleasure cruise in one of our boats, that I'm sure a Krugman has any middle-class American can get. And we don't have to worry about a bunch of pirates moving up and kidnapping us and taking our stuff as we're on a pleasure cruise off the coast of the United States. We don't have to worry about that. But they do in other parts of the world. We don't have to worry about uh, having lack of sewage facilities so we have raw sewage in the streets or raw sewage being pumped into our rivers. Now, that does happen at times, certainly. But we do have uh, people that are interested in maintaining, regardless of government regulation, maintaining a healthy, high-class environment because they don't want to have dirty water and air. And, uh, of course, uh, you know Bob Murphy mentioned that air pollution and things were decreasing even before the EPA made these regulations because people wanted those things to happen. I don't know many people that want to drink raw sewage. Even before we had... EPA regulations, people were concerned about having good sewage treatment plants and clean water because that was important. So the, the less that he's afraid of, I mean, it's just trivial. It's pathetic when you think about it. The other thing that we can talk about here is the benefit of industrialization. He does say a wealthy country, but it's when you look at this environmental situation. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about industrialization uh, and how that has produced the most prosperous uh, economy in the history of the world, in the United States. It has. Now, we can talk about the evils of industrialization. They are there, but not for what Krugman says. Because I think even the Marxists recognize that industrialization raised the standard of living. That economic activity, the way we had it in the United States, raised the standard of living. Uh, It was funny when when Bono, you know, this this Marxist Bono, went out there and finally admitted, well, you know, what what lifts people out of poverty is economic activity, good economies. Not socialism, not not command communism, not planned economies, but uh, private economic activity. Because when you have people able to make money, they want to do things to make money. And if they don't want to, they don't get it. I mean, okay, so they're comfortable with what they have, and they don't want to go out and do anything else? Well then that's their business. But when you look at industrialization, so you look at the most powerful countries in the world, they were all rapidly industrializing in the 19th and 20th centuries. So when you look at the good, and I, I, I when I teach uh, a unit on industrialization or you know the industrial revolution in my courses, I talk about the things that are good, bad, and ugly about industrialization. So, Certainly, I think we could make a list for what not to be thankful for, but it has nothing to do with the with the petty little garbage that Paul Krugman says he's he's fearful of. Fearful, I think being afraid of the plague, or the Vikings, or some of these things, or heaven forbid, nuclear war, uh, because we've created nuclear weapons. I mean, those those are things that I think you could say. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, something I could be – but, you know, um, I, I think for, for most people in the United States – and we could say, well, we're fearful of, of the next paycheck, certainly. Some of that has to do with, uh, with the centralized economic system that Paul Krugman has helped create because of uh, inflation, because of credit situations, because of all these things that allow these you know very tense economic situations to take place, and because people are not trained any longer – for, for good reason in some ways, to save any money. So, yeah, I mean, we, we could look at how uh, certainly we have uh, a, a situation in place where some people don't have economic security. And that's that's scary not to have economic security. I think it's scary to have to pay the amount of taxes you have to pay. That's scary to me. That's That's fearful. I'm fearful of that because if I don't pay the taxes, well, you know, I could go to jail. That's something to be very fearful of. Um, so, things like that. I mean, certainly there are things to be fearful of, but the things he lists are just, again, most civilizations, that would be a good day. You have to you have to worry about people not liking you? Well, so what? I mean, get over yourself, right? That's just so silly. It's just so stupid. It's not even, it, it's, it, it, I'm surprised that even the New York Times had even published something, well, I'm not surprised. They would publish something so petty and stupid. We have gotten to the point in the United States where we're so decadent and so wealthy and so well off that we are fearful of people not liking us. People saying a comment to us that we don't like. That's what it's come down to. I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful of people who are anti-intellectual. Now, that's another, another thing he pointed out. Look, the United States has more, ec- more educational opportunities than any other country, essentially, in the world. Uh, now you could say well no the socialized countries in europe they have more they have more uh, educational op- opportunities than we have in the united states now certainly people don't take advantage of these e- educational opportunities in the united states and i think that's cultural that has nothing to do with the opportunity there i see it all i mean you can you can go to school you can go to college in the united states for free if you are poor it's there you have you have pell grants uh so th- there are opportunities out there to go to go to school and to lift yourself up out of poverty if if you think college is going to do that for you uh, even technical sc- uh degrees which nobody i mean of course Krugman is saying oh, I, we need we need uh, high level intellectual jobs certainly you know having tech jobs and things like that are important but you know what uh so as being a welder which you can make uh, six figures being a welder, and all you got to do is go to school for a couple years maximum, and you can do that, and it can be paid for for free. The, the the U.S. government, the taxpayers, will pay for it for you. If you're poor, even if you're not poor, you go to a technical school. It's cheap, it's cheap to get those things. You can go out and become a nurse at a technical school, get a two year degree, and you can be making, uh, you know, above the median income in America. The opportunities are there, but you have to seize those opportunities and you have to work for it. Or you can go out and work for uh, you know, HVAC, start your own business, make six figures getting a two-year degree. There are so many opportunities out there that don't involve going to get a four-year degree. And as as uh, as, as Tom said, you know, there are no jobs in history. Right, there are no jobs uh, in these intellectual fields because everybody wants to flood into them and they forget about the jobs that you can make good money. And those jobs are only possible because of industrialization, because of the society in which we've created. But yet, we're fearful. I, I don't think anyone should ever write a Thanksgiving piece and say they're fearful of anything in modern Western society. There's nothing to really be fearful of that you cannot control. You, you, can, you cannot get your feelings hurt if you want to. I mean you can just say, look, I don't care if people don't like me. I'm going to go out and do what I can do anyways. There's tremendous upward mobility. Nobody's stopping anybody from doing anything in the United States anymore. But this is the world, this little, this little bubble in which these people live, that is just uh, embarrassingly stupid. Okay, so w- what did industrialization do? Well, obviously, it improved the living standards for those in industrialized countries. Incomes continue to rise. Incomes, that the the, the incomes that Americans have today would be the envy of anyone living in the world up until the 20th century. Uh, Even in the 20th century, people would look at what we make and they'd say, my gosh, you make that? You have people in the United States that make that kind of money? That is amazing. The technology and the consumer goods and the comfort and ease and luxury that we have would be the envy of any civilization in the history of the world. Charlemagne would love to have a middle-class home in America with middle-class medicine, with middle-class luxury items, with middle-class ease and comfort, with middle-class beds, with middle-class shoes, and Charlemagne was the most powerful and wealthy king in the world in the 8th century. He would love to have those things. We live in such tremendous luxury and ease that we can write stupid op-eds that say we're fearful of people not liking us. So all of this is a byproduct of industrialization. Now we can talk about some of the things that industrialization. Of course, Kriegman would say, "Well, yeah," but you got to be careful of industrialization. You got to be careful of capitalism because it creates income inequality. Huh? yeah. Some people make more than other people because of incentive, because of the the idea that they can go out and get these things. And certainly, the person that I mean, you, you take people even in a period where we had no labor laws. No labor restrictions, no minimum wage, and you have an Andrew Carnegie and a John Rockefeller. Now, how is it that those people were able to rise to the top, yet we didn't have a minimum wage? We didn't have any labor laws that said you can only work 40 hours a week. How was it those people were able to do that? Why? Because we had a free economy at that point, uh, to an extent. I mean, I think you could make an argument that we were living in a period still of Reconstruction where the government was promoting industrialization and, and creating this Hamiltonian system where there was another side of this that I'll talk about in a second that was getting obliterated by this industrialized world but regardless someone like Andrew Carnegie who had nothing could come over to the United States and become the perhaps the second or third wealthiest man in American history a Scottish immigrant with nothing or John Rockefeller who uh, had Nothing. His father was a flandering snake oil salesman. And John Rockefeller became the richest man, perhaps, in the history of the world. Now, that is tremendous. And this is in the 19th century into the early 20th century, a period that Paul Krugman hates because of income inequality. Now, certainly, wage workers were not as well off at that point as they are today. But that's because industrialization hadn't gotten to a point where it was improving their conditions yet, which it did. Even Marxists admit, Marxists admit the conditions on their own improved in the mid to late 19th century. Andrew Carnegie, the man who's often vilified by labor historians for being just a bad guy, was increasing benefits and wages on his own regardless of labor agitation. He was doing those things on his own these things would naturally happen and certainly the amount the, the type of work that people were doing and uh, our safety standards and these things were not up to snuff back in the late 19th early 20th century but again these conditions would improve over time the fact that we had children in factories and you know coal mines and all these things yeah and, uh, you know doing these terrible jobs and people getting hurt on the job and all these things. Certainly, these are these. This is a bad situation. But that stuff was going on no matter what. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the, the fact is, even now we look at it and say, you know, it's great to be. It, it's it's it, the things we worry about in the workforce now is somebody saying some, something to us we don't like. Uh, certainly, we still have dangerous jobs, but even those dangerous jobs have been made less dangerous. technology and other things so again this is a petty little thing to be fearful of not saying that it shouldn't these things shouldn't happen these things should happen or you know we should we should try to mitigate uh you know uh, these type of conditions that are uh uncomfortable in a workforce absolutely we should that could be done with gentlemen though and a cultural shift that's all that takes But the thing that that is lost in all of this, and it's something that I think is a problem with modern American society, and and I mentioned it a little bit when it came to credit, is this loss of independence. That is one of the bad parts of modern society. We have a society where people are not independent. Even in an industrialized world where you have saved money, let's say you have saved, uh, and you have a nice savings account, you have investments, you have things. You still are not fully independent. You are still dependent on other people. You have to get that money somehow. If a bank collapses, there's no money uh, unless you have hard currency on. You, if you have to get food. There's no foods, what they call food security. If you live on a farm, though, and you are, you are not a debtor on a farm, that is the key point. We live in a debtor society. That is a society that Paul Krugman favors, a debtor society, a society with a central plan, centrally planned economy that creates inflation. This is a society that Paul Krugman wants. It is a society that he should really be concerned about because people don't have any independence in that society. Now, certainly he would say, well, uh, I'm not worried about that. But people leaving the farm, particularly if they own the farm, they weren't debtors, were a tremendously more independent people than people who live in suburban and urban environments, than people who even have income security where they have money saved and other things because they don't have food security. They don't have security... Personal security, because in an urban situation, if things hit the fan, you are in trouble. But on a farm, you have some security. And so this is part of the bad of of industrialization, where it it pushed people away from that. I mean, farming is a hard life. There's no doubt about it. It's not easy. But you do have independence on a farm. You don't have to raise your hand and say, can I go use the bathroom? You just go use the bathroom. You can eat when you want. It is a hard life. You are dependent on one thing, the environment, it raining and, and not being too hot or too cold and these kind of things. But still, you have independence. And so when we look at you know, industrialization versus agrarian, like an agrarian society, this is a conversation we could have, a, a discussion about you know, should there be a balance between the two in a way. Uh, and I, of course, my you know, I often talk about think locally, act locally. I like you know local farms and local businesses and these kind of things and local communities. I think the industrial industrialized world has created an environment that is less personal, uh, and that is part of the problem when it comes to interpersonal relationships. It is less personal. You are you are more likely if you have been in a much more personal situation with people, particularly if you have values and norms and customs and morals that are of a gentleman and lady quality, you are more likely not to be, quote-unquote, ugly or fearful if you have that type of situation because there is a mutual respect between people. And that, that's where some of these things, these issues that he's, quote-unquote, fearful of, this is where it comes, this is where it factors into and of course, the last thing that I would say about industrialization—one of the ug- one of the ugly things—is the process of centralization that it sped. The process of centralization in politics helped lead to more bloody and violent total wars in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Without industrialization, we don't have World War Two or World War One. But of course, the technology that's often produced by some of these things, um, in in the in the quest for technology, is going to help improve the standard of living. So. And, and the thing you can say, you know, there's a book, War Before Civilization, by Lawrence Keeley. It's a, it's a very good book. But he points out that industrialized societies are less inclined to violence, to nasty wars, than pre-industrialized societies. They are. Uh, in that way, um, uh, when I say more bloody and violent total wars, but there were fewer wars. I mean, so we can look at World War II as the most destructive war in human history. And absolutely it was. We haven't had a war like that in 70 years, thank goodness. I mean, it just hasn't happened again. And I think because people get their stomach turned by it. We haven't had a nuclear war uh, because people don't want to go through that. Industrialization makes it where people are comfortable and they want to leave other people alone. In and, and, and many ways, you know, that comfort means that I want to leave. I mean, as long as my neighbor's comfortable, fine, let him alone. You know, just leave him be. Uh, we want other people in the world to be as prosperous as we are because that helps us. If they're prosperous and we're prosperous, we're all good. I think for the common people in society, that's that's the way it works. We don't. I mean, I would I would venture a guess that most people, even in these countries that are quote unquote enemies of the United States, could really care less about what people are doing in the United States and how they're living. They would want to have the prosperity of the United States, certainly. You see it all the time. But they would just want to be left alone. That's that's what it comes down to. Just leave them alone. So, uh, you know, Krugman's fearfulness, as I mentioned, is just, it's laughably stupid. And it's something that I think that, you know, people should point that out. Krugman, you live in in a time where there's really nothing, nothing, particularly if you are in the middle class in America or upper middle class. There is nothing to be fearful of except getting your feelings hurt. Well, get over yourself. Nobody's going to go out and wreck the environment. Nobody's talking about that. People want clean air and clean water. Everyone wants that, and so uh, you know certainly um, everyone wants that. And so because everyone wants that, <laughs> I haven't seen a policy that says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to dump uh, we're going to dump uh, heavy metals into the water again. Uh, we're, we're just going to go out, and we're just going to uh, produce an environment that would make you uh, choke. And, and if you go back and I, and I often say, you know, go back and look at. Uh, if you want to talk about dirty air and dirty water, go back and look at pictures from the nineteenth century. I mean, really, uh, when the snow came down black in Pittsburgh because there was so much soot in the air, and that was changing even before the United States government said, "You know what? We're gonna we're gonna uh, enforce uh, air quality restrictions." That was all changing. Uh, so go back and look at those things. You want to see a dirty environment? Look at that. People are trying to improve emissions and other things all the time, even without government intervention, even without environmental regulations. They're trying to do it anyways, because people want to live. And this is, I mean, this is wonderful. They want to live in a clean environment. So I would say, as I am here, we're getting ready to get into Christmas season. What am I fearful of? I'm fearful of things that I don't really have to worry about if in in modern Western society as much, you know, in nasty infectious diseases, a plague taking over. Yeah, certainly it could happen. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I embrace the fact that we have modern medical technology. Uh, and, and so, you know, those are kind of things that I think would be if you really had to be afraid of something. I, I, I'm i afraid of somebody you know, breaking into my house. Certainly that could happen. That's, that's a more thing to be afraid of than somebody hurting my feelings. If I was worried about that, I wouldn't I would just get up in a ball because people try to, uh, you know, attack me all the time. So so what? So this list, I mean, making the New York Times in this way is just completely stupid. And I, I you know, the, all the stuff he says, you know, he's uh, Tom and Bob did a nice job taking apart some of that. But just the overall idea to even have a list of being fearful in the society in which we live and the time in which we live is a complete ahistorical approach. I'll see you next time on the Brian McLeanian.